Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is the Asian Madness Podcast. A podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Welcome back to the Asian Madness Podcast. Hopefully everyone's doing well and staying hydrated and healthy. So for this episode, I spent a few days reading and researching a book and a topic that turned out to be way more captivating and shocking to me than I initially imagined. I personally think I have a pretty high tolerance when it comes to crime, as in, yes, they do shock me and make me emotional, but there are very few things that I won't touch. I know not many people appreciate crimes involving kids or overly grotesque details, but for me, it's all facts, and if I don't read about it or tell it as it is, how will we get the full picture? I would like to thank Kimberly H. for suggesting this case topic, because if she hadn't, I probably would not have thought of it till way later. So, have any of you felt like you've experienced some sort of oppression? Maybe it's your parents instilling thoughts in you that you grow up thinking it's normal, only to later realize, oh, what? That shit ain't right. For example, we see this sometimes when it comes to race or gender stereotyping. Or maybe you felt like your government has oppressed you at some point in life. You feel like you're oppressed, and those that are doing it are brainwashed by the government into thinking it's okay. But what if you had to be born into and grow up in an entire society where you had no right to individual thoughts, and everything was about us, and not me. Where the thoughts of the government and leaders are supposed to be your one and only way of thinking. In this episode, 
we will take a look at what it's like to be born into a society so secluded, so mysterious, and so oppressed that even the people in it have no idea they're being oppressed. Let's see what North Korea is like through the eyes of a young woman, a North Korean defector, Park Young-mi. Let's begin. Some people call them North Korean escapees, some call them deserters, but the word that fits them best would be the word defector. There's really not a huge difference between these words, but escapee can be used in a broader sense, while deserter has a slightly negative connotation, like someone who deserts their family or responsibilities, leaving them to rot while they get away. It sounds more selfish. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, defector is defined as the conscious abandonment of allegiance or duty, which could include a person, a cause, or a doctrine, which in this case means the person who runs away from the North Korean regime in order to seek freedom and a better life. Park Young-mi was born during one of the harsher times in North Korea, and you might be thinking, is it even possible to be born in a harsher time? Well, yes. Let's take a quick look at North Korea's history. Back then, there was just one country, one Korea. No North, no South. During World War II, Japan invaded Korea and China and tons of other countries in Asia. The citizens and countries that were invaded by Japan were basically living like second-class citizens. Instead of using their own language, some of them were forced to learn Japanese. They began to work for the Japanese, gave up a lot, lived under harsh conditions, and the women were treated horribly, used as what we call comfort women. So the war eventually ended when Japan surrendered on August 15, 1945, and that was when the two megapowers flooded into Korea. Soviet Russia taking the northern part, and U.S. troops taking the south. The 38th parallel was then formed, officially dividing the two Koreas into north and south. The U.S. put Rhee Sing-man as the president of South Korea, while Soviet Russia made Kim Il-sung a Soviet major as the head of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. A few years later, ruthless and totalitarian leader Kim Il-sung decided that there shouldn't be two Koreas so he decided to enlist all eligible men in North Korea and took them along with Soviet troops down south, invading South Korea, which was the beginning of the Korean War. South Korea, of course, fought back along with the help of U.S. troops and forces from the United Nations, and they pretty much drove the North all the way back. So far back, they almost reached the border of China and North Korea. China was a communist country still is, and buddies with Soviet Russia and North Korea. So they of course were like, hell no, not on my watch. They jumped in to defend their friends, and under United Forces, the U.S. troops were then pushed back to the south. So basically, it was a war that did not end the division of the two countries, but instead left millions dead and two countries in complete ruins. Since then, the two Koreas were kind of just like, okay, you do you and we will do whatever we want. So in a sense, peace amongst the two countries. It's pretty clear to us that the North made the decision to invade the South, hoping for reunification. But in North Korea, the story was very different. I believe it must be because the North lost, 
So instead of being honest about the facts, they told their citizens that South Korea and the U.S. attacked first, trying to kill and invade the North. They were just fighting back. And the real enemies here are the wicked West and the backwards-ass country of South Korea. I imagine the story will be told very differently if they had won. It would sound more like, your fearless and eternal leader, Kim Il-sung, succeeded in reuniting Korea. All hail the immortal leader. That's my take, at least. North Korea received a lot of aid from both China and Russia for quite a while. Before the 90s, General living conditions weren't considered too bad. Yes, the government, aka the Kim family, controlled everything and everyone. But under the Kim regime prior to the 90s, at the very least, most people were fed, they had clothes, kids went to school, adults had jobs, and they were able to make livable wages. No one was really well off unless they were somehow tied to the government, but it was manageable. Food and commodities were rationed, but like I said, it was enough at the time. Things started to go downhill, though, when Soviet Russia began to disintegrate. A lot of lifelines were cut off, such as fuel, fertilizer for farming, etc. China was still going strong, though, but as times changed, even they became more open to mingling with other countries, something North Korea was not open to. Sure, China helped out, but it was not enough to keep things going the way they were. Soon enough, there was a crop shortage, people began to lose jobs in factories, and food became scarce. The government, though, was very much reliant on its military, so any sort of food or goods that did come through were first distributed to the military and government workers. It was a huge, oh well, what can you do to the normal civilians living in North Korea? You would think with the situation going bad, the government would consider opening its doors to other countries and encourage trade and business. But because the higher-ups were surviving, they decided to ignore the situation and hope for the best. Also, they didn't need their people to suddenly lose trust in their government and realize that their leaders aren't actually omnipotent. Instead of actively seeking ways to improve the country, the Kim government encouraged people to work even harder. Not like it was going to get them anywhere, but it gave people hope because if their great leader said so, it had to be true, right? North Korea has had three leaders so far, all from the same family. First was Kim Il-sung, ruling from 1948 till his death in 1994. He is coined as the eternal leader, also believed to be immortal. You can imagine the shock and sadness the people experienced when they heard that their leader does in fact die. Then came his son, Kim Jong-il, ruling from 1994 till his death in 2011. The current leader is Kim Jong-un, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It just so happens we are in the age of the internet and the age of memes, so it's pretty hard to find someone who doesn't know who he is or what he looks like. The first leader died around the time the famine and situation was starting to get bad. The people had to act for themselves, and that's when the whole black market trend began. It's really not as bad as it sounds. It's actually not bad at all. It's basically just normal trading and business in most parts of the free world. But since it took place in North Korea, it was not only illegal, you could get punished for it. 
So this is what I meant in the beginning where I said Park Young-mi was born in a rather harsher time than normal. It was poverty all around, and every man for themselves. The government was no longer able to provide for their citizens like before. Now, let's take a look at what Young-mi's childhood was like, and the kind of hardships she went through, things many of us could never imagine going through. Park Young-mi was born on October 4, 1993, in a cold and northern town called Hesan, located right next to the Yalu River, which divides China from North Korea. She did not have much growing up, but when you've never had much, it's hard to compare and feel unhappy or discontent. She had loving parents and an older sister whom she was very close to. Her parents had met through the mother's brother, and it was uncommon for couples to meet organically and get married. Arranged marriages was usually how people met. Life was very simple for Yummy, despite being born in the 90s. She didn't have toys to play with, so she had to come up with things to do like make clay or paper dolls with her friends or play pretend. Her family sometimes did not even have enough food for them, but whenever they had some money, they would make sure their two daughters were well fed. Any kind of meat was considered a luxury, and their basic meal usually consisted of rice, kimchi, beans, and maybe potatoes. The town they lived in is considered pretty structurally backwards. Most times they did not have electricity running, and it was rare for anyone to own any type of vehicle, be it bicycles or motorbikes. Most people just got around on foot. Houses were simple and the walls were thin and there wasn't a lot of space for families. Yanmi learned at a young age that it was smart to keep her mouth shut, and that it was never okay to say anything bad about the Kims, their eternal leader, their god. It was even scary to think bad thoughts, because when you grow up in a place like North Korea, you believe everyone and everything can hear you. Even thoughts going on in your own head. Those that did speak out or spread any kind of gossip, even if they themselves didn't believe in it, would be somehow found out and detained for interrogation. Where did you hear that from? Did you repeat it? And do you believe these lies? We obviously know that our own thoughts live in our heads, but what if you were taught to believe otherwise? The Kims were believed to be immortal, godsent. No, not even godsent. They were gods. It's pretty much religion, but way stricter and way more intense. And the person you're worshipping is actually alive. Kind of like a cult, except its members never had a choice. Because of the economy collapse in North Korea, the Park family had to look out for themselves as much as they could. Gyeonmi's father would work very hard to have a job, and eventually he managed to meet the right people, work at the right place, and got himself a party membership. In many communist countries like North Korea and China, people who showed devotion and loyalty to the government had a chance to join the party and become a member. It helped with your status, your living conditions, and just made you more trustworthy in general. After obtaining a membership, Yami's father began to find other ways to earn money, and that involved the black market. He apparently had a lot of skills when it came to buying, trading, and selling, but too bad it was all illegal or else they probably would have been a rich family. There was a lot of bribing and smuggling involved in this type of work, which made things extra difficult and dangerous. 
He began a small side business by buying and selling cigarettes, and eventually moved on to larger and more expensive things such as clothes smuggled in from China, sometimes electrical appliances, and valuable minerals and metals. Yummy's mother also worked here and there, and she even had a degree in inorganic chemistry, which she would later use to obtain work at a chemical factory. But like many others, factories laid people off, and she had to look for other ways to earn money. Eventually, though, she joined in on her husband's side business, and for a while, they made enough money and lived a decent life, probably even rich in comparison to their neighbors and friends. But good times don't last that long, or lack stability. The black market business began to thrive, and that brought on a lot of competition for the parks. Now I would like to talk about some of the hardships Yanmi and her family had faced on a daily basis. The book often describes circumstances where the two young girls would be left alone as their parents had to travel for work. Sometimes it would be hours, sometimes it would be days, and at times it would even be months. Their father was the one who was often away for months, and their mother usually stayed with them. But there were times where she had to leave for longer periods of times as well. They would rely on whatever food their parents had left for them, and sometimes friendly neighbors would spare whatever little they had to help the girls out. The two sisters also would pick berries and eat grasshoppers and dragonflies, sometimes finding out the hard way that certain plants should not be ingested. Since the town would get so cold during winter, it was impossible to get water from the river as it would be completely frozen. The entire town had to rely on one water pump and the line would be insane. It usually took hours of standing in line, and sometimes they would have to get up at the crack of dawn, and even then, people would already be lining up to get water. They had very little entertainment, and not a lot to do, and everyone basically spent most of their time working, studying the wise words of their dear leader, and trying to get enough food to eat. It was common for people to get sick, and not have the money to seek medical help. Even those working for the government were severely underpaid, including doctors, the military, and the police. How did these people make it work then? Some rely on bribes, some rely on threatening civilians. Yanmi learned at a young age that humans were very much expendable after allegedly witnessing a young man get publicly executed for killing a cow. The man suffered from tuberculosis and had no food. He had no choice but to resort to killing a cow, which was state owned, therefore property of the government. Many of us, even as adults, have never seen a dead body, let alone someone get executed in public. It was definitely used to send a message to everyone else mess with the government, and you die. It wasn't just public executions. Yanmi and her peers oftentimes saw suffering everywhere they went. People would be dying of hunger. Sometimes even their neighbors. Under normal circumstances, it would be fine to help out. But when everyone was struggling and hungry, sharing became very difficult. It was not uncommon to come across dead bodies or people dying on the streets. The Pak family sometimes had to resort to other family members for help as well, and it was not always welcomed. Yummy recalled being close to her grandmother. Her grandmother was actually from South Korea, but she was very unlucky because she just happened to be on the North Korean territory when the two lands separated. 
She was said to have been a kind, elderly woman who tried her best to help out the neighborhood kids, despite not having much herself. She hinted that being alive was probably a burden to those around her, and she eventually ended her own life by overdosing on pills. I admit, it's not definitively stated that she did it on purpose, but it was assumed. Yummy was allegedly present when the family discovered her grandmother's lifeless body, and it was a very tragic day for them. Some people say education begins early, as in your parents help shape who you are and what you become. Everyone was taught at a young age to not only respect, but worship their dear leaders. Any kind of foreign media was banned, including movies, music, shows, you name it. If you were lucky enough to have a TV or a radio, the only channels you could watch or listen to were government channels only, and any type of music or entertainment you accessed was used to praise the leaders and encourage people to work harder because the dear leader sacrificed so much for you. How dare you sit on your ass or feel unhappy? They would tell stories about how the leaders ate very little, worked so hard, survived under harsh conditions just so his people could live. They would continuously talk about the evils outside of North Korea, how South Korea is a shithole and America is corrupt and evil. The greatest nation in the world was North Korea, and it was so deeply ingrained in most people's minds that they believed it. Because when you have no way to compare or fact check, how would you know you're actually the one being oppressed and living in one of the worst countries in the world? School children were taught to sing songs to praise their leaders, so it was a full-time job for everyone to worship their magnificent country. Despite the bans and the tight leash around foreign media, it was still common for smugglers to smuggle in cassette tapes, videotapes, and eventually DVDs into the country. People would secretly watch Hollywood movies, South Korean and Chinese soap dramas, and listen to K-pop. Even commercials that we usually hate and skip over were considered interesting and captivating. Yanmi's first taste of freedom came from one of these illegal movies, Titanic. She was in awe that this kind of relationship existed, that, quote, Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet were willing to die for love, not just for the regime, as we were. The idea that people could choose their own destinies fascinated me, unquote. Despite a taste of the outside world, it was still too far out of reach for anyone to even feel jealousy or envy. It's like a fairy tale, a fictional story. It didn't make sense to be jealous of fictional things. The Asian Madness Podcast is brought to you by EveryPlate, which is something that is definitely necessary for me because I'm lazy and a terrible cook. So sometimes we get tired from work and school and everyday obligations such as existing. But for sure, we all need food. This is where you have a chance to not only cook easy meals, but also eat healthy and great tasting food. Every plate is a very easy way to make food at home. Definitely way more affordable than getting takeout or buying a ton of raw ingredients and not knowing what to do with it. How affordable, you ask? Every meal is about the price of a coffee, which isn't too much considering how most of us are willing to buy that cup of black energy every day. Cooking doesn't take long either, maybe 30 minutes, and it saves you a trip of aimlessly roaming around supermarkets. Not just that, though. 
you also get to pick between 17 different recipes every week. And if you want to make small changes to it, it's also really flexible, like changing out the meat, the veggies, or even the sides. I'm a very lazy person when it comes to food. I hate thinking about what to make. I hate the act of cooking. But because I don't have unlimited funds to get takeout 24-7, I still have to cook. Every plate comes at a very reasonable price, a lot lower than most other meal kit deliveries you find out there, but still very nutritious and well-balanced. With services like every plate, I get to save time racking my brain coming up with meal plans, saves me from freaking out in the kitchen, and gives me very clear instructions on what to do. Try every plate now for just $1.99 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code MADNESS199. That's like $199 per meal. And if that ain't a steal, I don't know what is. Enter code MADNESS199, as in the numbers 199, at everyplate.com to eat better and save more money and time. Things took a turn for the Pox in late 2002 when Yummy's father was arrested for his smuggling business. This was something they dreaded, but it's not like they didn't know the risks. This was a huge blow to the family in more ways than one. First of all, their source of income was already struggling, and now it was pretty much non-existent. Then there's the whole family reputation thing. It was hard for the average North Korean to climb their way up the social ladder, or to leave the caste they were in originally. But it was extremely easy to get cast down. It was also bad for those who were related to someone with a criminal record, as they would be viewed as traitors as well. Yami's mother, upon finding out her husband's arrest, immediately left the two girls and traveled to the capital city of Pyongyang to find her husband. She had to find out what was going on, and if there was any way she could help him out, about a month or so later, she returned to her scared, lonely, and hungry daughters and explained to them that her father was not doing well. He had been tortured and sent to a re-education camp. Soon after, the authorities came knocking on the Park family door, taking away Yomi's mother this time to interrogate her on what she knew about her husband's side business. She was gone for days, writing statements and repenting to the officials. The interrogation seemed never-ending, and she had no choice but to cooperate. She was called back and forth for the next several months, and when it was finally over in August of 2003, she returned to her daughters and took them to stay with her brother, Yummi's uncle, in a town called Kowon. The aunt and uncle were very critical of Yummi's father, blaming him for being irresponsible and for bringing disgrace to the family, and for putting everyone in a bad situation but they still were very willing to help care for the girls while Yummy's mother continued her black market business and other odd jobs. It was risky for sure, but they had no choice. The re-education camp Yummy's father was sent to was a bad place, but not the worst. It did involve a lot of heavy labor, a lot of education about the Kim family and honoring the regime, but it was not a dead end for the prisoners there. In other words, it was possible to get out in a few years and live a quote-unquote normal life again. But in early 2004, the Park family received terrible news. Yeah, like things can get any worse. Her father had been convicted in a secret trial, 
and now would be serving up to 10 years in a felony-level re-education camp. This place was more brutal than the last, where prisoners were barely fed, expected to work long hours, were treated worse than animals, and would get beat for no reason, or for dumb reasons like looking at a prison guard. This was one of the worst places to be in, and many prisoners end up dying before their sentence is even over. You can imagine the despair the family felt, because none of them knew if he would ever make it out alive. Luckily for them, though, her father somehow managed to bribe the prison warden to let him out on sick leave, and he went to see them at Yami's uncle's house. It was true, too. Her father had been experiencing major abdominal pains and was so starved he could barely eat despite being hungry. If he tried to eat a lot, his body would just reject all the food. I imagine it must be heartbreaking to see someone you love in such a condition, so skinny and so frail. Someone who was once able to lift you up and put you on their shoulders is now barely able to stand or walk on their own. The four of them were finally reunited again, and they moved back to their hometown, Heson. Between 2004 and 2007, the family would stay together and do their best to survive. Food again was scarce, and they had to keep a low profile. Yeonmi and her sister were now growing up, pretty much in their teens and pre-teen years. And you know what that means. Boys. Puberty. Despite the fact that most people were still struggling, it was probably just something that still happened naturally. Kids that hung out with each other began to feel attraction towards each other, and it was something they couldn't understand at all. I think it's pretty obvious that the concept of dating wasn't a thing. Neither is love between a man and a woman, and there is no way they had any form of sex education at school. Being a teenager is damn awkward enough. But imagine having to navigate these weird feelings and no one explaining or telling you what you're feeling is normal. Society itself was very conservative, but you know how teenagers are. Very resourceful and the stricter the parents, the sneakier the kids. Many people had smuggled in jeans from China, which is an illegal attire in North Korea. Girls also had access to makeup from Japan. Despite hard times, it was still something the young ones actively sought out. Yeonmi also had her fair share of boys wanting to quote-unquote date her, whatever that meant. Her mother would be very strict about it, shooing any potential boy away. Typical conservative Asian parent thing. Kids that went on to date were also pretty conservative and naive, so it was mostly just hanging out as opposed to going on actual dates holding hands, kissing, or whatever else teenagers do on dates these days. When Yummy was around 13 years old, she met an older boy who was quite smitten by her. Okay, he's 18. Quite a bit older, but before you guys call out how inappropriate it is and how he's a pedophile, just know that things were very innocent between the two. I guess in a sense they were all teenagers, but one was a legal adult, while one was barely a teenager. The boy was from a rather rich family, and Yummy always felt ashamed and inferior to him, although he was nothing but sweet and respectful towards her. She was scared that he would find out her father was a convicted criminal, and if he were to associate with her, no doubt it would bring shame to him and his family. He could lose his chances of studying at a top university, getting a good job, or getting a party membership. 
The two kept their quote-unquote relationship very secret, not wanting either side of the family to find out, and also worried if others found out, they would gossip. In early 2007, Yami had a brush with death. Not only was she already hungry, poor, and not doing well at school because of missing so much school, she suddenly came down with a fever that wouldn't go away. She developed a rash and began to throw up. Going to the hospital was their last resort, as it involved payment they probably couldn't really afford. But she was in such a bad state, they had no choice. The doctors took a look at her and determined it was an issue with her appendix. But once she was on the operating table, they realized it was only a case of inflamed intestines. They took out her appendix anyway, and before they could finish their surgery, Yanmi woke up because they didn't use enough anesthesia. Imagine the horror and pain of waking up mid-surgery. Sounds painful. She stayed in the hospital for about a week afterwards, recovering. Her boyfriend also came to visit her, and it was clear that by now he knew about her father, but he didn't care. He made promises to her that once he was done with his military service and schooling, he would come back for her and marry her. It would take eight years, but she was worth it to him. Reading this part in the book was actually one of the sweetest things ever, because everything else in the book was just pretty sad and depressing. I feel like Yummy may have been too young to understand relationships and marriage, but at the same time too aware of the realities of the world they lived in. It's a very strange mix. Innocent in some ways, but not in other ways. During the time Yummy was in the hospital, her older sister, Unmi, had secretly made plans to escape to China. It was something many people did, and since they lived so close to the border, it may have been a bit easier. The Park family all had the same idea, though, but it would be extremely difficult making it work. You would have to know the right people, trust them, get smuggled, and be ready to face all these unknowns in a new place. Worst of all, you would have to be prepared to get snitched on and sent back to North Korea, where you would get punished for deserting your country and the regime. But when you are in such horrible conditions, any risk for a better life was probably worth taking. They had heard of countless stories of people who had made it across to China, and some others had even arrived in South Korea eventually. They honestly had no idea what to expect, but most people had a vague idea from the stories they heard and the illegal media they watched. Like I said, it was all worth a shot. Two major things happened on March 26, 2007. Yummy was discharged from the hospital, but she was still extremely weak from the surgery and her illness. This was also the day her older sister left. They knew she planned on leaving. They knew she couldn't be picky about when to leave. It was all up to the smugglers. It has to be extremely scary, knowing that a 16-year-old girl left on her own, intending on crossing the border to an unknown place, risking her life to do so. It's not the same as running away from home for sure. While Yummy's parents were panicking, Yummy found a note that her sister had left for her under her pillow. It contained a name and an address of a house in their town, and the note indicated that this person can't get her into China. At first, the lady from the house refused to talk to the Pak family, claiming that she didn't know Yummy or what they were referring to. But once Yummy showed up at her house alone, the woman was open about her connections and said she could help her get across the border. 
Yeonmi told her parents, and as much as they wanted to go together, her father was too sick and fragile. There was no way he could climb mountains, hills, or even cross a frozen river in this harsh weather and with his condition. What next? Ultimately, Yami convinced her mother that they had to go that night. It was what the lady told her. Her mother was very conflicted. On one hand, she wanted to get her daughter out of this horrible place, but she also felt immensely guilty for leaving her husband behind. She decided that if they were to go, she couldn't let her husband know of their plan, because if anyone found out, he would be looked at as an accomplice. I don't know. I feel like it didn't matter whether he knew or not. If the government wanted to make a case, they could still pin him as an accomplice. The mother-daughter duo made plans on the evening of March 31st, 2007. They left behind their house and prepared for a long journey ahead. They were now going to risk their lives to cross into China. I came across an article which did try to point out some inconsistencies in some things that Yummy has stated, and because I don't know the truth, it will be up to you to decide what you believe in. It's interesting to think about it, because I have a hard time remembering a lot of my own childhood memories, and by that, I mean anything prior to my teen years. I remember bits and pieces, yes, but maybe that's just me. So in a way, it's hard for me to imagine someone remembering so many tidbits from their childhood years. I've talked to some people about how far back they remember things, and I've received a lot of mixed responses. Some people are skeptical of Yummy's memories as she was so young, and she was only 13 when she escaped North Korea. So how do we know her accounts are all truthful? My take is that she may have had some help from her mother, who was an adult and probably remembers a lot of things that happened. I also wonder if it's easier to remember the bad things you experienced, because most of the things I remember from when I was a kid were either scary or traumatic, like getting chased by a dog, breaking bones, losing my teddy bear in a supermarket, or getting bullied. It could be biased, for sure, but there really is no way to verify. I believe we also begin to remember less and less as we get older. Like our brain is running out of space or something, and it's making more space for other things. So although some bits and pieces here and there might be contradicting, it doesn't really take away from the big picture. I think it's completely natural and healthy to be a bit skeptical of all accounts, just in case you feel this way. Thank you for tuning in to part one of Road to Freedom, and please stay tuned for part two. We will be discussing what it was like crossing the border into China, how life was as an illegal immigrant in China, and the final road to freedom. I will also be discussing other parts of her life and discuss more regarding some quote-unquote inconsistencies. Please stay safe and remember to be kind. You never know when someone is suffering, and one word or action from you can make their day better. Till next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com.
When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.